John Eno, and welcome to the Reed Smith Podcast, Inclusivity Included, Powerful Personal Stories. In each episode of this podcast, our guests will share their personal stories, passions, and challenges, past and present, all with a goal of bringing people together and learning more about others. You might be surprised by what we all have in common, inclusivity included. I'm Ivelisse Crespo, Global Diversity and Inclusion Advisor at Reed Smith, and I'm today's guest host of Inclusivity Included. I am joined by Jane Burton, Chair of the Lawyers with Disability Division of the Law Society. That's the representative body for solicitors in England and Wales. We're also joined by two of my colleagues at Reed Smith, Danielle Liebel and Kevin Hara. Danielle's an associate who focuses on transactional matters, and Kevin is an associate in our Life Sciences and Health Industries group. For today's podcast, we'll be discussing some best practices for ensuring that, your, that law firms and organizations can adopt to ensure that they're inclusive of people with disabilities. More than ever, companies are being forced to develop a diverse workforce. However, disability is often a forgotten minority in that group. One in five people will acquire a disability in their lifetime, and in- individuals with disabilities are a major source of untapped talent due to social stigma that they can't or don't want to work. As someone who has to navigate the world with an invisible disability, I find this topic to be incredibly important. It's one thing for a team leadership to say that they want to be more inclusive and another successfully put that vision into practice. I'm honored to be joined here today um, with Jane, um, Danielle, and Kevin, all of whom have unique lived experiences, um, professional experiences that they're going to be sharing today. So Jane, why don't you start um, by telling us a little bit about yourself and if there are any best practice tips that you can share uh, with leaders um, to ensure that um, they're able to enhance feelings of inclusions for people with disabilities in their workspaces. Hi. Well, I'm the chair of Lawyers with Disabilities Division of the Law Society of England and Wales. And um, I'm a leader of a group of uh, about a 1,000 people who belong to the Lawyers with Disabilities. And we have a committee. Um, we represent lawyers with disabilities, trying to promote them um, for better working practices within the profession. Recently, we had um, a survey done by Cardiff Business School. They came to us and wanted to make a study of the legal profession and how accessible it was for people with disabilities. And um, we got a lot of very interesting findings from that. We, we already knew that there were great barriers for people with disabilities within the legal profession in England and Wales from what people came to us with, with their stories and their problems. So this gave us um, some concrete research that we could use to go to employers, to legal organisations, firms, and say to them, look, this is the... This is the reality for disabled people in the profession. What are you going to do about it? The report came out in January. Um, the president of the Law Society in the UK, uh, in England and Wales, held um, a dinner for major law firms. And this was all starting to get off really well when the coronavirus lockdown came along. So we're now um, in the process of carrying out some roundtables um, we've, we've done one, we're going to do another three virtually, and we're going to try and promote remote working now for when we come out of this coronavirus lockdown situation and people 
have gone from overnight from not wanting their their employees to work remotely to everyone having to work remotely more or less. So we're saying, look, this was a problem in the past for people. How about now you've got to reconsider this amongst other things? Absolutely. Thank you, Jane. In terms of, you know, I hear that you're saying flexible work arrangements are incredibly important. Are there any other uh, steps that companies can take to ensure that they're creating a culture that's inclusive? Well, we'd like um, employers to think about recruitment to start with, because what we found was that only 8%, that's 8, not 80% of disabled legal professionals found the recruitment process agreeable to them. So already you can't even get through the doors in firms. And one of the things that we're asking people to do is to create their own um, work experience program just and set aside some places for disabled um, students. And also to have a recruitment process that sets aside at least a couple of places for disabled trainees. Because in the UK, you, you pass your exams, then you need to do a two-year traineeship. Now, this is something that Reed Smith already do in the UK, in, in, in their London office. So really, Reed Smith are a trailblazer in this, in the UK. And they have actually won a lot of diversity awards with, you know, because this sets you aside, this sets Reed Smith aside as a, a firm that's really looking at inclusive employment. We also would like um, people to do reverse mentoring so that a leader in a firm sort of shadows um, a disabled junior employee to learn what it is, what are the barriers that they face. This this has also been very helpful. We've seen this happen. And we also need to see leadership in uh, firms, people to, to disclose that they have a disability if they have them. And for, for promotion prospects to be opened up to disabled employees and lawyers. Absolutely. I mean, I think the same can be said for here in the U.S. Um, da- Danielle and, and Kevin, um, do you folks have any uh, steps that you'd like to share um, in, terms what, in terms of what businesses can do to make job opportunities more accessible? Um, are there certain uh, U.S. organizations that law firms or regular organizations and businesses can partner with um, to help uh, recruit um, more people with disabilities? Yeah, so one thing um, that I've experienced during my 1L internship in law school after my first year was I interned at Microsoft, and they had a program similar to what Jane was talking about, where they set aside one intern spot for a law student who identifies as having a disability. And they go through and they mentor you, they um, pair you up with other lawyers with disabilities. Um, So if you have any questions or concerns, But as far as workflow, you're immersed with all the other interns. It's very inclusive, which is actually how um, I ended up at Reed Smith. Um, It's because they say, hey, Reed Smith is an inclusive firm. Um, So 
I would highly recommend businesses and law firms um, mirroring that program that Microsoft does. Um, as a law school student, which was three, four years ago now, the recruitment process is somewhat frustrating because all the diversity and inclusion spots usually go to those who are racially or ethnically diverse and not, they don't really include people with disabilities. Absolutely. I was looking at um, doing so, I did some research on, um, you know, disability and employment and job recruitment. Um, And according to the Disability Equality Index, only 44% of companies make all job interview, all job interview candidates aware that um, they're, they're allowed to request an accommodation for an interview, um, which to me is, is, is really bizarre, right? If, we, if we're trying to be inclusive and we're trying to recruit folks, um, we want to make sure that we're leveling that playing field and providing the opportunities for folks to be able to even step into the room or, or dial in virtually. And so, Kevin, do you have any input on, on how uh, organizations can work together to make these job opportunities accessible? Well, uh, that's a good question. And Following on what Danielle said, um, I believe Reed Smith has done a good job of making the whole interview process uh, more accessible for persons with disability by doing just what you were talking about, which is allowing accommodations uh, during the interview process. Um, our, Our recruitment forms now specifically state that if you need any accommodations for your interview, uh, please you know, let the firm know and you'll receive them. And I, I think that's one big step in the right direction. Certainly there is more work to be done. Um, and you know, working with organizations such as Microsoft has helped us learn a lot. Uh, we also have worked with Accenture, um, who is a very disability smart organization. Um, and in addition, we, we do trainings on a yearly basis on disability etiquette and awareness uh, with the National Organization on Disability. And those have been instrumental, I think, in separating Reed Smith from other large law firms. That's not to say that um, we can sit back and say, oh, you know, we've, we've done this. We, we still recognize there's much more to do, but I think we're always open to suggestions and best practices. And in particular, Carolyn Pepper and Jonathan Radcliffe, Luke, and some of the other members, and Danielle. Danielle has been great um, at getting leaders name out and, you know, pairing with other organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And for those and for those that are listening that may not um, understand uh, Leaders is the name of our um, disability um, employee resource group, um, which has been instrumental um, and has a, and does a lot of programming and awareness raising, um, which gets really to the heart of the next issue, right? We want to recruit folks. We want to bring people in, but we also want to make sure that we're creating a work environment and a culture where they're going to be accepted. Um, and, you know, that takes a lot of work. Um, Jane, I know that you've uh, done work with organizations in the past. Um, regarding creating inclusive cultures, right? And I know that you mentioned representation and leadership, right, is key, 
right? So having those people in those leadership positions that feel comfortable enough to openly disclose, right? Um, so that other folks that are joining the organization can see themselves represented in that leadership team. Are there any other tips um, in addition to, you know, making sure that you have proper representation um, that goes towards creating a culture where people can thrive? Well, having a, a disability network within an organization, we found, is, is very helpful. And at the recruitment process, having somebody that's dedicated to people. So if, if you have a disability and you require an adjustment, you can phone just one person at that firm. This is something that we recommend to firms so that you don't have to ring up each time or, or speak to many dis different people about your disability. So you've got continuity so that it's not such a traumatic experience because sometimes disclosing your disability is not easy. And this is why we're finding that a lot of people do not want to disclose. If they can do, if they have an invisible disability, they will more than often not disclose that disability. If you have a visible disability, then you have no option. So you, to have somebody at a firm who's dedicated and understands the, the processes. We're hoping that firms will do um, training on unconscious bias because we feel that law firms and recruiters have, have a fear of um, the unknown in re recruiting people with disabilities. And we want to make sure that what is done in law firms with good practice is shared around. So the other firms are have a an equal number or, you know, a greater number of people working there with disabilities because we know there are a lot of very talented people out there. They've managed to successfully um, negotiate the education system. They've done work placements. All of these things with a disability are not easy. Um, you, you're managing to, to do things on an everyday basis that involve problem solving and many different skills just to, just to go out the front door can be a challenge. So we're trying to get people to recognise the qualities that disabled people have and the fact that there's a big gap, um, that you know, they're very underrepresented or if they're in the firms, they're not declaring their disability. So we, make, we need to make the firms safe places for people to talk openly about their disability. And if we had leaders in firms that could talk, you know, that would declare openly that they have a disability, this would be a great thing. Um, we're also working with um, a lord from the house, Lord Shinquin. He's introducing a bill to be brought into new employment law where there will be pay, pay reporting, so pay gap reporting. So each protected characteristic has to um, publish a firm of over 250 employees will publish its pay gap reporting so that firms will be kind of named and shamed in this sense by by this legislation. That's interesting. You know, and, and I think, you know, that transparency um, goes a long way, right? So having folks disclose how well they're doing um, in terms of making sure they're appropriately compensating um, all employees, right, um, is That's incredible. Right. Yeah, and then what we we do find, we have this misplaced paternalism. So people who acquire a disability during their working life, they might go back to work and the firm welcomes them back. They might go part-time, they do remote working, but they also 
can find that they're given work that is not at the same level that they were doing beforehand. So they're not able to pursue a partnership within the firm. And this, their line manager might think, oh, well, you know, we will give them this work. It will be easier for them. Whereas that's not necessarily something, probably not always, always it's not something that they want to do. They want to give, be given challenging work like everybody else. And if if you're given work that's less uh, challenging um, and then you're going towards, you know, promotion, then it, it looks bad on your record or why have you only done this? And it's not necessarily the person's fault. It, it's the work that they've been allocated by a, a well-meaning but um, it, it, line manager in that case. Absolutely, it's important, right? That that we're that we're making intentional steps um, as as organizations um, towards inclusion. Um, now, Danielle and Kevin, uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you be able to share with us? Um, you know, speak to your work experiences either at Reed Smith or elsewhere, um, where you've seen employers take intentional steps towards being inclusive. I know that Kev, I know that Kevin, you mentioned leaders, our employee resource group um, being a great resource for folks, um, and you also mentioned some competency-based trainings. Um, do you do you find that these? Do you find um, that there are other steps um, that that the firm has taken um, to be inclusive, or uh, steps that you feel that previous places that you work could could have taken um, to be more inclusive? Y- yes, um, that's a very good question. Um, I think. It cannot be overstated the importance of having business inclusion groups such as leaders um, for for a variety of reasons. Um, and one is simply being able to have a leadership position in um, an employee resource, or as we call them at Reed, Reed Smith Business Inclusion Group, BIGS. Um, having a leadership position really allows you to develop some skills uh, that you would not otherwise have been able to do. Uh, it, it allows you connect, to connect with other persons at the firm with whom you might not have interacted before and frankly may never have interacted but for uh, having the uh, platform of leaders or another um, business inclusion group at Reed Smith. So that that is a big part of it. Um, another aspect, I believe, is now that Reed Smith has really embraced diversity as a whole, but specifically, they've taken some steps with regard to disability diversity, um, trying to make our website, the content more accessible, um, and working with companies who are attuned to the importance of disability diversity. Uh, a lot of employers now require, a lot of our clients now require us to disclose the amount of or number of individuals of, from diverse backgrounds during pitches and other business development efforts. And they, they demand that a high level of diversity on their teams. And that transparency uh, and Reed Smith's willingness to look for such organizations has gone a long way to allowing me to develop. Um, And I can only speak to my experience at Reed Smith because I've been here uh, since I started years ago. And the firm has taken many steps to becoming uh, 
more diversity oriented and more disability friendly. Um, you know, I've been allowed to work remotely for several years, you know, primarily remotely, and sometimes I would go into the office, but largely um, on a remote basis. And that has allowed me to be much more productive. Um, it allowed me to take uh, advantage of the equipment I have at home that's more, you know, it helps me to work at a higher level. And it's just things like that that seem like small accommodations really go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Danielle, any thoughts on organizations and how they can build competency around disability? One of the things that I think is really important, right, is allyship. Do you, do you have any thoughts on the roles that allies can play um, in terms of building competency and making their organizations more inclusive? Yeah. Um, to piggyback off of what Kevin was saying, the inclusion groups within Reed Smith and other law firms are really crucial. Um, they're not just open for only attorneys with disabilities. Um, we have lawyers who have siblings or who are just in it to see their colleagues with disabilities thrive. Um, and so having that group is also very powerful. Um, Reed Smith, it, it, one thing that they recognize is during recruiting um, is that you are, the candidate is also interviewing you. So I remember during my summer, I was looking at is this a firm that I can thrive in and who's not going to look at my disability, but is going to say, oh, she, she's got the smarts um, and thrive. And one thing they did right away was put me in touch with Kevin and leaders. Um, and from that, I got a sense of we like we will do whatever we can to help you thrive and promote and make sure that um, your disability is not a factor in um, your success at Reed Smith. Absolutely, and and you and Kevin both are, are shining examples of of why inclusion is so important. You both you know are thriving, um, and you make everyone at Reed Smith incredibly proud. So we, 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 I just want to thank you both. You know, some of the things that you folks touched on each individually you talked about the flexible work arrangements. So we've talked about, right, how um, we can intentionally be intentional about our recruitment and make our recruitment accessible. So we're talking about bringing people through the door. Um, we've also talked a little bit about how we can build up our culture to make sure that our culture is a place where, where people with disabilities even want to work um, and where they can thrive. Um, and one of those, um, one of those uh, steps that folks can take, right, is being flexible in their work assignments and their work arrangements. Um, and I know Jane and Kevin and you, Danielle, have all talked about this with me. So I'm going to circle back. Um, Jane, if you wouldn't mind um, just elaborating a little bit on these flexible work arrangements, uh, what, what does that look like, right, um, in addition to remote work, which I think is incredibly on point right now, um, given that um, our, all these organizations have now shifted to somewhat seamlessly to remote work. Um, some of those same organizations have long denied 
um, these accommodations for people with disabilities. So it's inter- it's going to be interesting to see how those organizations adapt, right, in the future. Um, so in addition to that, those kind of working arrangements, Shane, do you have any other thoughts in terms of what a flexible work arrangement looks like? Well, a flexible working arrangement, they're, they're very usually quite simple to do. I mean, somebody might need to come in to the office, but they don't want to travel in rush hour. So, so you simply make it so that they can come in slightly later than other people so that they miss the rush hour traffic. Um, you, you know, you've, we've, we're now all working from home and they're talking about um, here in the UK, um, the lockdowns stopping with people um, staggering their times to arrive at work. So again, another reasonable adjustment that we've been asking for for a long time, and which people do get here, um, or a taxi to work rather than having to take the underground. So these these things are now becoming the norm, and we need to build on this once um, once this crisis is over and, and make people look at those practices. I mean, a, a reasonable adjustment could be that you have clear glass doors in your firm and a visually impaired person might find that a problem because they, they, they're banging into them. Put some stickers on the doors, it's that easy. Or your desk might be too high, too low. You can get an adjustable desk. You get a chair that will accommodate the person or you may need to put in some screens around a desk for somebody um, with neurodiversity issues so that they are shielded and from the noise. Reasonable adjustments are often really very simple to implement. And I think it's about also educating the people who with non-disabled people in organisations to see these adjustments. Maybe that's something that will be easier once the, the whole coronavirus situation is over, that we can use the example of what has been happening now. Absolutely, Jane. I think you hit you hit the nail on the head, right? I think what I'm hearing you saying, I think, gives light to a lot of the hesitancy, right? People, people in leadership roles who are doing hiring and who are in these supervisory roles, oftentimes are are just not knowledgeable enough to 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 have the um, wherewithal to ask about accommodations, right? So oftentimes they're ready to write somebody off as as this uh, this person is going to require too too. Um, accommodations that are too difficult when oftentimes these accommodations are simple, they're doable, um, and they act as equalizers, right? That's um, it. I mean, you could, and um, I I know, I think Reed Smith does this. Um, I'm almost certain you do. You had a, a passport system for people with disabilities who worked there, and you wrote down the adjustments and the conditions so that it was easily accessible to different line managers, especially if you were training or moving from one department to another. And I think I'm right in saying that actually that was extended to all employees because it might be that different employees who are non-disabled could actually help be helped by having an adjustment to their working life, which isn't too difficult to implement. So that's that's one key thing that we, in the Legally Disabled Research Report, that was one of the findings of the research that this passport system which explains what you need, and it's so uh, it's transferable. So you might move department, or your manager might leave. So then the person coming in to replace them doesn't have to go through this whole process of interrogating you about your disability, 
or or anybody else about their working practice. So you've got a um, you can you can see what they what each employee needs, disabled yeah. or non-disabled. Absolutely. And that seems like a very simple thing, right? You know, communicating with the right people, making sure we have that transfer of information. So we're not requiring people to disclose it over and over again. Yep. Now, uh, Kevin, uh, would you mind talking about, you know, flexible work arrangements? I think when oftentimes when people think about remote work or telecommuting, um, they don't really understand why this is so important, right? Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, your experiences um, with flexible work arrangements and why they're so important for folks with disabilities. C certainly. Um, I think one of the ways that it may not be intuitive to everyone, but simply uh, eliminating the commute, well, it sounds like, well, you know, that's that's not such a big deal. But eliminating the commute going from here uh, in Berkeley, where we live, to San Francisco, uh, reduces the amount of t time that um, I have to spend doing non-work. Um, just you know, spending time looking for the right elevator. Sometimes, um, it, for instance, um, you know, I have a motorized wheelchair, a visible disability, so it, there's no, you know requirement that I, I can, I must disclose the disability, obviously, because it's apparent. But uh, my point is, sometimes the elevators um, in the system that we use here, um, similar to the underground, it's called BART. Um, it's a you know subway system, uh, essentially can be very difficult if there are elevators that are not working and I need to go to another station, or if a bus route that I use is not running, um, you know, things that people might not think of, but, but that's a big factor and allows me to be much more productive by not using those hours, um, worrying about traveling when I can dedicate them to just being able to you know, focus on my work and having a home office allows me also to take my medicine when I need it, or um, if I need to take a break and adjust my position in the chair, I, I can do that here with ease. I, you know, there's a lot of extra space. Um, and just having small, as, as Jane mentioned, small and simple measures that might seem otherwise daunting if you don't know about them um, really has made a difference. Um, and just, for instance, being able to get water when I need to get water um, is can be a little more difficult at the office than here. And these are, again, little adjustments that make for a big difference because I, I can really um, work a lot longer, uh, be more productive, and do so in a, in a healthy manner where I maintain my physical and mental health. And, and I, you know, I echo that. I think it's incredibly important for people to have an understand that these aren't major asks that people are asking. They're not asking for accommodations that would limit the quality of work, right? They're asking for accommodations that act as equalizers so that folks can do their jobs um, and do their jobs more effectively. Danielle, any, any thoughts on the uh, work, the flexible work arrangements? Yes, I think... Uh, 
really awesome thing that this whole COVID situation is shedding light on is how we can include people who work remotely in the social life of the firm in that morale. Um, I think it's really easy for employees who work from home to maybe be forgotten about um, what and not really seen in the social life of the firm. Um, maybe that's a choice by them, but maybe it's just an outside of mind thing. And I think this um, this COVID situation is really shedding a light on unique ways of how we can include those who work from home um, for various reasons in our social life of the firm and how we can still include them with building morale um, and how we can provide accommodations in that way as well and not just in the um, typical work sense. That's, that's an amazing point that you make there, right? Something that a lot of people don't consider. Right, when we're thinking about accommodations for remote work for work, we're thinking about the regular nine to five. Well, a lot of organizations, they have, you know, company parties and get togethers um, that, you know, as, as much as people say um, those are just social events. Right. That does really go that really goes far in terms of professional development for people. That's how people network um, and build relationships. So thank you so much, because I think it's incredibly important for us to remember that it goes beyond the nine to five. How can we make sure that we're making those networking events accessible, right? Um, whether those are done virtually um, or done during specific times um, so that folks are able to attend and get the benefits of networking um, and, and being part of that company culture. Any final thoughts, folks? I think, um, you know, the, the, about the networking, that's a very important point because in the legal profession, it's often used in the criteria to assess for promotion, how much networking has this person done? And it can be very difficult for disabled people who can't attend functions. So I think when you're assessing promotion criteria, you have to also make an adjustment to that too. So I think it's a great point that Danielle made about not being excluded from the whole working environment because you can't go you can't necessarily go in every day or you don't you know you, you can have a flexible approach where you can go in some days but not others but also that you look at um the lack of networking for a person perhaps they're hearing impaired and a networking situation just would be very difficult for them to 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 do but they bring in other th assets to their work um and I think it's looking at what the person can do and focusing on that and focusing on the positive aspects of a person, thinking outside the box. Putting people first. I could, I, that's, that's amazing, Jane. So I want to thank you all for joining us um, and for the audience. We hope that these tips help business leaders open their minds and their workplaces so that more companies can reap the benefits um, that others have by hiring, retaining, and advancing people with disabilities. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Inclusivity Included is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. Available on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and ReedSmith.com. 
This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.